Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, from the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew, but I'm going to need you to speak loudly and clearly throughout this podcast because I am hovering in a helicopter above the city of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I was trying to take a little tour of the Niagara Falls, but word leaked that Kawhi Leonard (laughs) and the MLSE private jet was headed back to Pearson Airport. So we took a little detour, and we're now doing circles or donuts, I don't know what you call them, in a helicopter around a hotel where thousands of people have gathered to try to get a glimpse of what you know, arguably is the biggest free agency decision uh, in the history of professional sports. There we go. My favorite part about that is it is entirely plausible that you would be on a helicopter tour above Niagara Falls. Have you ever done that before? Uh, I've never been there. I was planning to do it if Toronto had closed out Game 5, so unfortunately they scuttled those plans, which uh, I have not forgiven them for whatsoever (laughs) because I really wanted to go. But you know what I say about helicopters, Andrew? They're the OG drones. You know what I mean? Like drones, we haven't really gotten into the drone thing for the last couple of years. Uh, I might have let my license uh, elapse, you know, but Uh um, helicopters, I mean, what a way to fly and what a way to view (laughs) everything. Absolutely. I'll never look at a helicopter the same again after your OG drone take. Um, But yes, Ben, we've made it to the plane tracking stage, which is the final level of any offseason story in sports. Your favorite stage, right? It is. It is. I, I love plane tracking because it lays bare just how creepy and pathetic sports can get. And I will click on every single plane tracking story there is because honestly they can sometimes lead us in the right direction. Like, I'm sure you remember Jim Harbaugh at Michigan a few years back, people tracking him to Ann Arbor, or Dan Gilbert's jet going to Florida to meet with LeBron. Do you remember when Gilbert then had to tweet a photo of his backyard to try and dispel the LeBron rumors? Like, I think it was like a day or two before free agency. For sure. And that's what I was going to say. Does this make MLSC broke boys? Like they only have the one private jet that the secret's already out on. Everyone knows what their fleet's about. Like, shouldn't they have maybe like a whole line of these that they could use to like use decoys, throw people off the scent? (laughs) I mean, does this reflect negatively on the Raptors is what I'm saying. You know, you're joking there, but that was a serious reaction that I had which speaks to how crazy free agency has gotten and how broken all of our brains have become after the last 72 hours of this. But I did start to think to myself, look, if Kawhi is putting all these teams through this sort of loyalty test where he's testing what leaks and and what meeting details get out, like maybe the Raptors should have sprung for an independent charter so that nobody would be onto the scent with the MLSE jet. And that's how they could have kind of like snuck Kawhi into the country and made this work uh, and keep it all undetected. So big picture, does this jet influence Kawhi's decision in any way? Or does <laughs> no. it? Is it revelatory? I mean, I think he had said earlier that he was going to meet the LA teams and then give Toronto the last meeting, right? Sort of like out of a sign of respect, they're the incumbent team. I think that's sort of standard uh, operating procedure. And I got to be yeah. honest, I've killed for Kawhi for a lot of things over the years, but I know people are upset about how this is dragging out, quote unquote, it's taking so long. Why doesn't he just decide? 
Um, mm-hmm. By Kawhi's standards, this has not been a very long wait. I mean, you go back to 2017-18, he had Manu and Tony out there on the runway for seven or eight months before he officially quit on them. <laughs> so, I mean, what's three days in the grand scheme of things? And I do think he's uh, got completely the right to play this out how he wants. I mean, he just earned that right in the playoffs and in the finals. So, you know, everybody, just chill out with the anxiety of, oh, when's it going to happen? da 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 da, da. Uh, and let him make his decision on his own timetable. And as far as I can tell, it seems like it's been a, a pretty re- respectful process. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, we did get a, an email from Tommy who said, is Kawhi on load management during free agency? I live in Indonesia, so I've been waking up in the middle of the night to check for daytime updates from America, and it's just a mess. Please get it done soon. I want my normal schedule back. So Tommy, that's a you problem. No, that's a Tommy <laughs> problem. That's not a Kawhi problem. Okay, unless your job depends on you uh, instantly reacting to this news, you're going to be okay if you find out when you wake up in the morning. And honestly, I think sleep—you know, getting a solid at least six, seven, eight hours of sleep in a row every night on a consistent basis—is one of the most important things you can do for your health. One of the most underrated aspects of life. And Mm -hmm. I think, Tommy, this is a great opportunity for you to look in the mirror. I mean, come on. (laughs) Look inward at what you're prioritizing in life. Um, That's a fair take from you. You're on fire today. So, all right. I want to be clear on one thing. Number one, all of the plain stuff, we both agree that that will have zero bearing on what Kawhi decides, correct? I mean, he has to go back and get his stuff in Toronto at some point, right? Like, we don't, well, he didn't move himself cross country in the, in the interim period, right? So it, it makes sense that he would have to kind of go back to Toronto one way or the other. Um, so, no, yeah. I don't see any bearing. Okay. Cause I don't want anybody to listen to this and hear us joking about the plane tracking and the stalking and the helicopter surveillance and think that we are actually arguing that that is going to sway him from staying with the Raptors. Um, Number two, do you have any feel for what direction this is going right now? I feel like we're doing a public service by recording this podcast on Wednesday afternoon. It will almost certainly be outdated by like noon on the 4th of July, maybe earlier, maybe an hour after we finish recording. Kawhi will decide. That's just the way it goes. I didn't want to make our producer, Brandon, who's the best, wait up until like 11 or 12 the night before 4th of July. So here we are, we're all kind of flying blind on this one, which I've really enjoyed over the last couple of days. What do you think is actually going to happen here? Well, you know I live by the Jim Rome mantra, have a take, don't suck, you know, don't, no generic praise, no like, you know, waffling and all that, all that stuff drives me crazy. But okay. I had to do a little piece like laying out the pitches from all three teams. And mm-hmm. I got to say, like, there's good pitches on every side. I don't think he can necessarily lose here. It's kind of a win-win-win, and it will reveal what his priorities are. Now, if I had to guess based on uh, the Lakers' moves and how sort of radically they exposed themselves to risk and how they allowed a lot of other targets to kind of go off the market, I would say that that is the biggest tell that we've seen, right? Um, Because That's that's exactly how I feel. The Anthony Davis trade makes sense if Kawhi is coming. It's an utter disaster, and it's so much risk if he doesn't come, and you miss out on all of these other guys, and you don't have the trade assets to go find another guy to fill that max slot by like a trade. So to me, I guess I'm operating under the assumption that Rob Polinka is not like 
the craziest brinksman in the history of negotiations, <laughs> like, you know, Kim Jong-un style, like, I'm ready to go to the wall and, like, threaten everything. I feel like he's revealed himself to be a pretty rational actor, and so I yeah. guess I'm leaning towards the Lakers at this point, but, you know, I don't feel very confident about it. How about you? Well, yes, and keep in mind that that was some of the rationale that had us looking at the Knicks over the last nine months and saying, all right, well, they must know something because it would be insane to conduct business this way if they didn't. Um, and so I don't know if the the Lakers have earned that much more of the benefit of the doubt than the Knicks had. Um, but I agree with you in large part. The tell to me was D'Angelo Russell panicking and saying, okay, well, I need to get the max from somebody, so let me go to the Warriors I think if the Lakers had, uh, if the Lakers were a little bit more uncertain, they would have messaged to Russell's camp to just like hang tight for a couple days because if Kawhi falls through, we will max you out and make this work. And um, that, so that's just like my gut feeling. But again, okay. I think what I love most so, about all this is that nobody has any idea. Yeah, boil this down though. What's a better story? Kawhi joins the Super Team Lakers. Or the super team Lakers go up in a puff of smoke and they're starting Jared Dudley next season? Well, see, and that's what I love most is I will enjoy it either way, okay? I am prepared to enjoy Kawhi on the Lakers. We can talk about that if it actually happens. But if it all falls through, after all the trash that has been thrown out by Lakers Twitter over the last seven days, like second-guessing, very trusted reporters talking all kinds of shit about what they were going to do and how stupid everybody else was going to look and how we were all ridiculous for ever questioning Palinka. If it were to fall through, it would be one of the more enjoyable stories of the last couple years. So yeah, I it would be right way. up there with the Celtics and Anthony Davis. <laughs> it would be. It, it would be. And you know what? Like that, that whole schadenfreude thing was great a couple weeks ago, and we would enjoy it. Like the, the Lakers story would be just as good. I appreciate you fake smiling and laughing along with that one. We know that one hurt, though. Listen, man, I came on this podcast like 18 months ago and also said the Lakers have the assets to trade for Anthony Davis. I remember because I had all these kind of Lakers minions follow me after that one and say, oh, my God, like this guy gets it. So I've been arguing both sides of the Anthony Davis possibilities for most of the last three years. I'm just glad he's not in New Orleans anymore. I just remember one of the sides. But what else we got today? (laughs) All right. Well, because Kawhi is not going to be, uh, because we don't know what Kawhi is going to do, we're just going to talk about everything else that has happened in free agency, and people can listen to it at their leisure on 4th of July or July 5th. We're coming back with a podcast that will drop Saturday morning. For, for now, we go from the biggest story in basketball to the Sacramento Kings, Ben, because Peter says... Please defend the Kings signings. I think my Kings got fair value on good role players who will help our young core flourish and contend for the playoffs, but some NBA voices derisively look at the total money and dismiss the Kings as foolish losers. These are front-loaded contracts. These players are better than the guys they're replacing. The Kings still have cap space and assets going forward. I am excited for what's possible this season. Ben, 
can you help Peter out and defend what Sacramento has done this offseason? Well, do you remember when we went to Toronto for the NBA Finals and like their currency is just worth nothing? So we were balling out of control. Like, I mean, we renting out like the top floor penthouse uh, hotel rooms. I mean, we could do whatever we wanted because there was that currency exchange rate that really favored us. <laughs> I guess so. I, the currency exchange rate, isn't it like we, we like 15 cents better than America? I think the Canadian dollar is worth like 12 cents at this point but uh okay. no i'm exa- i remember I, i'm exaggerating honestly, but you noticed it when we were there didn't you yes and i i remember eating a lot of like expensive sushi that was not nearly as expensive as it would have been in america so right. that was my that was my version of balling out in toronto right you check your credit card statement after the end of the week and you're like wait a minute that dinner was only 14 dollars. <laughs> like what happened yeah. here uh, I bring this up because the reverse is what happens when it comes to Sacramento, right? I mean, it's like going to London or Paris or someplace where just everything is like 50% uh, more expensive <laughs> than it needs to be. I mean, yep. what would Trevor Ariza go for in a non-Sacramento America, right? Like probably $10 million total, like two years, ten, yeah. two years, 10 million, two years, 12 million. But you go I'll to Sacramento thought, and it goes for 225 Ariza- I, I don't understand what they did there. I, like, I thought Ariza was going to be a vet minimum signing for the Lakers, which would have made a lot of sense to me. But I watched Trevor Ariza in Washington last year. Like, that dude is washed. He's not trying on defense anymore, which, granted, <laughs> hey. that could be more of a Wizards problem than an Ariza problem. But, like, there's just not a lot there. And locking him up for $25 million seems pretty excessive to me. That was really good work by you preemptively batting away my opportunity to make fun of the Wizards. That <laughs> bummed me out a little bit, but I appreciate it and respect it. So I think he's one example where like they paid at least twice as much as they should have paid for Trevor Ariza. Now, uh-huh. uh, a guy like Corey Joseph, I think that was uh, you know slightly overpay, but not horrible. Um, Harrison Barnes, I remember when the trade happened and I told you they're trading for this guy because they're already going to have a handshake deal to re-sign him. And I want to say I threw out some like four year, super large number and you groaned for like 45 seconds straight, right? You were like, Oh my God, I hope that's not what they do. That's exactly what they did. And I think he's probably got the emptiest stats of any of these, like, you know, top 25 free agents, uh, you know, for this number, it's like him or Julius Randall. And they basically paid, 25% 25% too much, at least for what he's doing. Right. So I don't like that one. Um, and then Rashawn Holmes is fine. I think he's like a league pass darling where he's got his own little like click of, uh, you know, diehard people who, who always stand for him and are going to say, okay, that contract wasn't so bad. Um, you add it all up. I think they got better for sure because they spent a lot of money, but th- I don't think that they're, um, the value in terms of how much the dollar per win <laughs> is thrown out of whack. But for them, Making the playoffs is what they've been trying to do year after year after year after year. This is an amazing time for them to try to sneak into the playoff picture. They clearly are loading up in Sacramento fashion, which means no stars, but you know the best possible role players you can overpay. And I think they're going to have enough depth and enough young talent to sneak in as an eighth seed. And if that's their definition of winning, then they won. Yes, I agree with that. That's a bad definition of winning, though. I want the Kings to dream bigger than that, and I want good things to happen to De'Aaron Fox. And what it what this summer looks like to me is they just spent a lot of money to go from like 38 or 39 wins to 42 or 43 wins, which isn't even guaranteed to get them into the playoffs in the West. 
and I just don't really understand it. Like Dwayne Dedman, three years, $40 million. That's fine. I think the idea of Dwayne Dedman is much better than what you're going to be getting in reality. Yeah, Corey I mean, Joseph hey, is the same category. No, like, it's just tough. Let me double back with the Wizards swipe. Who would you rather pay Dwayne Dedman on his number or what the Wizards gave Mahinmi? Well, okay. <laughs> the lowest bar in the universe, the Kings are able to clear, okay? Deadman at three for 40 is better than... I don't even right. want to think about what Mahinmi actually got, but so, yes. I'm saying De- Deadman, that could be like a C-minus deal where, you know, there are Fs out there in recent uh, com- comparables, you know? Yes. And well, and an F would have been paying 50 or $60 million to Willie Cauley-Stein, which is what I was worried they were going to do until like June when we found out that those two sides were pretty far apart. I like Deadman as a alternative to paying big money to have Willie Cauley-Stein come back. Rashawn Holmes, I really like. I would have liked their offseason a lot more if they had taken that Deadman money and just given it to Kevon Looney and got Rashawn Holmes in on a two-for-ten deal and had Harrison Barnes. I'm not sure how much Corey Joseph is actually going to help them at this point, but like, sure, if you just want to pay a veteran. Um, I All of this seemed like lateral moves, and I just wish they had been a little bit more creative or ambitious. Right, and I mean, we know for a fact, because Patrick Beverly came out and said it, that they were trying to get him, and he was yeah. willing to take basically a 20% discount to go back to the Clippers. So, I mean, congratulations to the Clippers on that one uh, for establishing a culture where you can keep guys for a cheaper price. But, I mean, Sacramento, it, it's an uphill battle for them. You know what I mean? It is. And I would say this, though. I think we should add that the glass-half-full version of this story is that the Kings already have the good young players in place. They've got Marvin Bagley. They've got De'Aaron Fox. They've got Harry Giles. They've got Bogdanovich, Buddy Heald. And so bringing in some capable replacement-level veterans, even if you have to overpay, is worth it as an investment in the potential of the young core you already have. And that makes sense to me. I th- I'm just like not going to be blown away by any of these guys. Well, um, yeah, I think like- the, the best defense of the moves is that they aren't super long-term deals, right? So they're, yeah. they're placeholders here. You let it run for two years. You hope you make the playoffs. You hope your young guys turn into stars. And then you reassess two years down the road with you know fairly good flexibility in terms of being able to trade guys if they're on a three-year deal. Um, or you have expiring contracts that come off in two years. I think that's sort of how they view this next era of Kings basketball. Um, You started listing off their good young players, though, and I mean, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, what I'm saying is if Peter is excited for what's possible this season, like I, too, am excited for what De'Aaron Fox is going to look like. Bagley on his good nights last year was pretty fantastic, and I'm excited to see that dude. I'm excited to see if they can make it work with Harry Giles and Bagley up front. I'm not sure if I believe in that, but um, it's going to be kind of fun to watch them figure it all out. And that's about all we need to say about the Kings. I think we've done enough on that front. So let's move it to the Pelicans, because the Pelicans are another team that brought in some veterans to invest in their young core. What did you think of what they've done? Well, I think the natural comparison people are going to make is, are they making the same mistake they made with Anthony Davis when they first had him, where they're sort of like rushing in to build a team around him immediately, and they wind up shooting themselves in the foot a little bit because they won't have uh, some level of flexibility or whatever else down the road. I think people were worried that that would happen. I think maybe a better comparison, though, uh, 
because of the experience David Griffin went through in Cleveland, I feel like he's looking at the proposition of building around Zion and thinking like, we didn't have any structure. We didn't have, uh, you know, anything but like total chaos when they were first trying to build around Kyrie Irving and Dion Waiters. And that thing got so toxic. Those young guys did not develop as quickly as they should have. And if LeBron had never come in to save the day, who knows where Tristan Thompson's career would be or where Kyrie Irving's career would be. I mean, Dion Waiters' career, you know, is on life support, but it wouldn't, right. it would have been an even worse place probably uh, than it is right now. So what I think he's trying to do is living up to what he said right after the draft or right around the draft, which was like, we don't want to put this all on Zion's shoulders. He doesn't have to be our leader. This is Drew Holiday's team. And I think that that was a good line at the moment, but I'm actually starting to believe it a little bit more because you're bringing in guys like Derek Favors. You're bringing in some of these other like kind of high character veteran players. You're giving uh, Zion a structured incubator to be as good as he can possibly be without asking to him to do things right out of the gate that might be uh-huh. too much. And I think that's sort of their goal. So um, when you look at like where does this go long-term, I'm not sure it goes anywhere long-term. I'm not sure if any of these guys who they've added here are going to be meaningful pieces uh, you know, that are going to be like sidekicks for Zion three or four years from now, right? Um, but I do understand sort of the base level logic of like, You've got to do a lot of culture repair on the Dell Demps era. And and I think that's sort of, you know, they're trying to mix a little bit of that with a little bit of what's the best way to ensure Zion reaches his full potential. I understand that. I don't know. I, I, I agree with you that it's a mistake to compare it to the Anthony Davis era because part of what made those deals with AD so horrible is that they were all like, long-term bets on Tyreek Evans and um, the guy they traded for from Chicago. Ashik, that was the best deal of all of them. Oh my God. It was really brutal. And so I understand that it's not an apples to apples situation because a lot of these investments are low risk, short-term plays from New Orleans. I do think that we need to kind of like pump the brakes on the David Griffin worship that's happened in over the course of the last like three to four weeks um, on NBA Twitter because Griff did a really good job trading with the Lakers and extracting the most valuable the most value possible. So that's a win right there. He drafted Zion Williamson number one. That's a clear win right there. Everything else, like I, I don't know if I, I love some of these other moves, and and the the team they have now is like I, Mason Ginsburg, who's a great Pelicans writer, uh, tweeted out their depth chart. It's like Lonzo Ball at point guard, Drew Holiday at shooting guard, JJ Redick at small forward, Zion Williamson at power forward, Favors at center, Ingram off the bench. I just like. I don't love that team if the goal is making the playoffs. And more importantly, I don't understand why the goal is making the playoffs because it goes back to draft night. It's like if you do want to pair Zion with an all-NBA type sidekick, like your best route to doing that is the draft. And so I don't really understand the hurry to compete in New Orleans. Right. And maybe it's just yeah. a cultural thing. No, and I'm not sure that they're actually trying to do that, though. I think that's – I'm trying to say, like, I think they want to be – competent they want to be mm-hmm. uh respectable they don't want to be this like crazy rebuilding thing where zion is just kind of like you know being thrown into the deep end like a player like devin booker down in phoenix where it's just like oh my god like what's happening down there right like i, I when you're looking at the money that they paid these guys whether i mean taking favors in was like not that big of a um 
uh, investment. I mean, J.J. Redick, two for 26. Like, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. It's more than I would have given him, but not crazy. I think yeah. part, another factor here, though, and I don't think that they're being driven by this desire to make the playoffs. That That's number one. But number two, another factor is they have to figure out how to use Zion in the NBA, right? Like, we've been saying all along, like, it doesn't really matter what his position is. Like, he's positionless. He's this modern player. He can do it all. He can play five. He can be, you know, a ball handler in the half court. That sounds well and good in theory, but you also need to see what types of players can play with him and who are the best kinds of guys to have around him. Does it make sense to have a big-bodied, you know, uh, slower guy like a Favors as his bodyguard center and he plays the four? Is he going to really benefit from playing like a guy like J.J. Redick who can create space in the half court and put him into more like one-on-one situations against his uh, you know, defensive player? And mm-hmm. if you're going super young all the way through that um, – you're maybe not getting those answers fast enough, right? And I actually, you know, we agreed, you know, they probably should have just used that draft pick um, at number four. But I think had they even done that, though, you could still make the same argument that like, okay, well, we don't know exactly how it's going to work with him and Garland or whoever else they would have taken there. Uh, We need to put him in a structured situation with a veteran coach who has clear uh, philosophical uh, opinions about how you should play in the modern era and see right. exactly how Zion works. Well, and it's funny because if they had just taken Darius Garland with that fourth pick, I would like their offseason a lot more than I do now because that decision to me betrayed a short-sightedness that I think is concerning as someone who's who wants Zion to be awesome in New Orleans. And, um, and so some of it is just confirmation bias. As I look at what they did at free agency, I'm like, look, like, why is this the goal? Why, why do you want to finish seventh place? What do you, what do you prove in that scenario? I do like bringing in JJ Redick as a guy who's going to allow Zion to breathe. I think that's really important. And as far as like their projected starting lineup, I think that they will be much better off with Redick at the two, Drew at the one, and Ingram at small forward. I, I'm not sure how long the Lonzo experiment will last in New Orleans. Obviously, you got to give it a shot, but like his shooting was really, really shaky, and I'm not sure if that's what you want around Zion. But I'm with you that, look, that's eventually— That's why I think the playoff stuff is premature, you know? Like, are they yeah. that good? I mean, it's not like they went out there and, and, like, invested— Like, if they had done the King summer, and it's like, we're going all out for that eighth seed, and they had spent, like, that level of money and, and given a long-term deal to a player like Harrison Barnes, I would be mm-hmm. like, oh, what the heck? You know, like, why are you guys, you know, repeating uh, this same mistake? I'm not sure that they're going down that path. I think they've got this thing steered, you know, pretty well— uh, although I do agree with you that they should have just picked at number four. Yeah, and I think we agree that the playoff talk is premature with the Pelicans, but there are a lot of people outside of this podcast that don't agree with no, that. No, that's and, fine. And Look, let, penciled them in. it's okay for people to get excited, Andrew. I mean, Zion Williamson's going to be a incredible show. It's true. I'm counting down the days until Friday night when we can watch him at his summer league debut. I haven't been this excited since LeBronzo. So come on, you let, let them have yes. a little playoff hype. It's okay. Okay. All right. I can get behind that. I look and I fully reserve the right to come on here flying the Pelicans flag proudly after 40 minutes with Zion on Friday night. So it will be interesting to see what that team turns into. And I, the thing I like most is that they have like eight or nine recognizable guys. And so watching them next year, like they are probably going to be a top three league pass team, regardless of whether they actually turn into a playoff team. They're, it's just going to be fun to watch that 
weird mix thrown together every night, and Alvin Gentry is going to have them playing fast as hell. So I'm now talking myself back into the right. Pelicans. I'm still very pissed off about the Garland pick. But That's where I stand. I, I hear you on that, but also keep this in mind. Didn't they display a level of uh, front office savvy in the first couple of days here of free agency that was just completely lacking for the entire Dell Demps era? Absolutely. And not only that, they did. And it's it's not something that should be thrown in there lightly. Like they managed the AD trade situation. David Griffin managed that situation expertly and and was able to get the best return for a superstar we have seen in the last 10 years, basically. So like, that's a huge win, regardless of everything else that happened. And all these other investments are kind of like short term, low risk things. So right. um, So it's like, instead of arguing, does David Griffin get an A or a B, which I think is what we're doing, I think we should just keep in mind that he's not an F, right? (laughs) That's what they've had for a long time. So this is going in the right direction. And if I was a Pelicans fan, I would be predicting 60 wins in a title because I'd be so glad to get rid of Dell Dems. I, I feel you there, um, and I it's it's an emotion that I hope to one day feel with the Washington Wizards, but we are a ways off on that front. And moving on, though, sticking with front offices, uh, Senator Batman says, okay, so we're not getting Kawhi, and Senator Batman, for those who are just listening for the first time, is a longtime Blazers fan and emailer to Open Floor, and he says... So we're not getting Kawhi, but the West is wide open. Is a trade for Blake Griffin possible? Kevin Love? Gordon Hayward? And if not those guys, who do you think the Blazers should sign and or re-sign and or trade for? That was sent on the first day of free agency, about 24 hours before the Blazers turned around and traded for Hassan Whiteside. So Ben... What do you think of what the Blazers have done this summer? Well, would you have recommended they go after Mario Hazonia, Anthony Tolliver, uh, and Rodney Hood? <laughs> no. No. Rodney Hood, you got to bring back, okay? He had a great little playoff run for them. But Hazonia, I just don't understand what the Blazers have done this summer. And Senator Batman, our sincerest condolences to you and Blazers fans everywhere. Be careful what you wish for when you say, Olshay, why aren't you doing anything? Because watching Hassan Whiteside with that Blazers team seems like it could be pretty rough next year. I mean, I don't want to fire real shots, but these are going to be like BB gun shots. Um, okay. The Blazers, the analysis of the Blazers summer that hit Twitter immediately after their moves, I think it's a great example of the perils of access journalism. Uh, you're seeing over-the-top praise for moves that are not worthy of over-the-top praise. And as a impartial reader, you need to do your best to kind of get through that and to try to make sound analysis because some of the things that were being said about Portland Summer to me were like, I mean, it was like the fake news stuff that we're always, you know, referencing. It's like, wait a minute, what? Like Hassan Whiteside's supposed to be an all-star? You know, this is going to be like a game-changing move. He's part of a big three now. Like, I mean, what world I honestly I thought I was on like bath salts or something <laughs> reading some of the descriptions of what Hassan Whiteside could do for Portland and what a masterful job Olshay was doing somebody said Olshay said don't expect fireworks but this is a stunning display of putting the Blazers in another tier yeah. and I'm just like whoa <laughs> really yeah I I think that it's very natural when a lot of players leave and a lot of player new players come in to focus on the guys who are coming in right but I think that the yeah. 
there's a real two-way street of talent going here for Portland. You look at, they lose Aminu, third in minutes for them last year. Nurkic, who was fourth in minutes, is going to be injured to start the season. They lose Turner, who was fifth in minutes. They lose Harkless, who was sixth in minutes. They lose Curry, who was seventh in minutes. They lose Myers Leonard, who was 10th in minutes. And they lose Canner, who showed up late, but obviously, you know, played some really important minutes for them uh, in the postseason Mm -hmm. as well. That is a huge chunk of their rotation and of the players that Terry Stotts trusted and of the players who enjoyed, you know, functional chemistry dynamics with CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard, who are all out the door, right? And so there's a huge aggregate loss to that team with all those guys leaving. Now, the question is, does bringing back Rodney Hood, adding Mario Hazonia, and Anthony Tolliver replace all of those minutes? And to me, the answer is no. And so then the question becomes, all right, well, the only way you're going to be making up for all of that, those departing minutes is Hassan Whiteside like taking it to the next level. Now, mm-hmm. there is a path where he plays significantly better and more effectively in Portland with you know Damian Lillard's guidance and the buy-in of knowing it's going to be a contract year and everything else. But he is not, to me, a game-changing type player. And if it required losing all these other pieces to bring him in, uh, to me, that's not worth it. And and so I, I think that uh, once the dust settles, there is going to be a lot of yearning in Portland for the players who left, who okay. played con- key contributing roles uh, you know, on the road to the Western Conference Finals. Like, can't you see a lot of tweets in December where people are like, man, wish Seth Curry was around, right? It's like, oh, I hated watching Aminu dribble, but we really could use a guy <laughs> who could defend that spot right now. I think there's going to be yep. a lot of that going on in Portland. And so I did not love their entire summer uh, on balance. I didn't hate it, but I think there's a lot more questions than the answers that had a guy like Hassan Whiteside is going to provide. Yeah, I do hate it. I, I think that team is going to be brutal to watch next year. Like if you start to really imagine Hassan Whiteside 15 or 20 feet from the rim trying to set screens for Lillard and CJ like I don't think that's going to go very well and I don't really understand why they wouldn't just try particularly with this market where we just saw Willie Cauley Stein sign for the veteran minimum in Golden State and you know there are affordable big guys out there the upside with Whiteside I think that ship has sailed over the last couple seasons. I mean, I don't know whether heat games are blacked out in Portland or what, but I have watched my fair share of the heat and they are just consistently better with Whiteside on the bench. And part of that is because Bam Adebayo is awesome in his own right, but uh, a lot of it is Whiteside and not really fitting with the modern game and not really caring about adapting. Right. And um, so the, the hope is the only way this works with him is that he gets this crazy contract year focus that he yeah. showed the last time he had a contract year. And he is only a placeholder until Nurkic comes back. Right. So it's not like they're relying on him to be like the main third wheel of a Western conference playoff push. Um, and he does, you know, rebound in volume. He does finish, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think the fit is weird, like you mentioned with their guards. I mean, they don't have like this Chris Paul type setup guy who's going to be, you know, just, you know, force feeding him lob dunks, you know, play after play after play. Um, right. And there's no question that his overall offensive impact the last couple of years has been a big time negative because he screws up the spacing and he turns the ball over a lot and he makes a lot of mistakes and he's not the most focused or consistent 
uh, type of guy. I think that the excitement comes from, you know, people like you who love fantasy basketball and they see the numbers and uh, that's about it. <laughs> people like me after I just got done crushing Whiteside. I think I have too many. We should be clear. I am too close with too many Heat fans in my life who just are like over the moon that they were able to trade Whiteside, which is never a good situation when the other side of a deal is just like falling all over themselves to give a guy away, probably a red flag right there. Right. Um, well, the, but- the the comparison that Blazers fans would make is that a lot of the same stuff was said about Nurkic when he left Denver and Canner had a million questions about him before he came to Portland and, and kind of turned his reputation around at least slightly, you know, during that postseason mm-hmm. run. So is there something in you know, magic in the water? Is it the Terry, Terry Stotts factor? Is it the Damian Lillard, the Lillard factor? Yeah. Is that enough to get, you know, eight good months out of Whiteside? I mean, do I think he's going to be a long-term piece for them? No. No. And to me, it just all kind of feels Grunfeldian because these are like half measures to fix mistakes that were made three years ago. And they're low ceiling moves that are kind of depressing, but like you can real, you can talk yourself into it if you squint really hard and, um... Well, I don't know. I'm just, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it bumps me out that Lillard and McCollum are stuck with this. Well, I mean, would you say though that Bazemore is a better fit than Turner? Cause I think he is. Yeah. That's the one, that's the one move that I think is a little bit better than a lateral move because he's going to be able to space the floor and he'll fit with, with Lillard. I think he'll probably be starting at small forward by the time we get to October. Right. And another reason why the fans are pumped up, I think is because it's an opportunity for Anthony Simons and Zach Collins to take bigger roles and Blazers fans, you know, like a lot of fan bases fall in love with their own young guys. And Mm -hmm. as we can probably safely predict, there's going to be some good nights for both those guys. And there's going to be some rough moments too. And if you're trying to compete right now and, duplicate last year's postseason run um i don't know how ready those guys are for that next step up hey guys what's up this is ben golliver with a message from mattress firm the only thing better than watching your team win is a perfect nap and mattress firm's president's day sale lets you get a king mattress for a queen price or a queen mattress for a twin price for savings of up to $600. And you can take home a free adjustable base with a qualifying purchase. But you have to hurry. The clock is ticking on this sale. It's ending soon. Isn't it time you saved and slept like a champion? Shop now. Mattressfirm.com. Mattressfirm.com for the President's Day sale. Yeah, well... We will see. We'll see what happens. It wouldn't be the, the most shocking thing in the world if Whiteside put together a really solid contract here with Lillard. I think I'm just scarred from watching him kind of like take up space in Miami over the last couple of years. Right. But even if but, he did that, are they going to pay him? I mean, that's the other thing too. Like, you know, guard your heart here. Like, let's say he comes in and has his perfect season. They've already got Nurkic in line. Like it's a backup center or a center like Whiteside. It's not going to be their top priority as a franchise. They've got Nurkic on a great deal. So to me, he's kind of like a mercenary, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Um, From one team in the West to another, Connor says, I was a bit surprised the Nuggets gave Jamal Murray a full max on the first day of free agency, a full year before they had to give him that deal. What do you guys think? Ben, give me your Nuggets take on that one. I think they're the most slept on team in the entire league right now. I think they've got Mm -hmm. a, you know, top 10 level player in Nikola Jokic. I think they've got great chemistry, great continuity. They brought back uh, Paul Millsap. They locked up Jamal Murray, and they're the team 
that should be getting at least half the love that the Utah Jazz are getting right now. Um, it's it's funny because I just had to fill out like a roundtable survey thing for Sports Illustrated, and it, they asked who's the most overlooked team in free agency, and it for me it came down to Houston and Denver in large part because of the continuity you're talking about. Granted, Houston's continuity was sort of like accidental. It seemed like Maury was moving heaven and earth to like make some changes. But I think both of those teams running it back is the right play. Um, Denver, I agree with everything you said. I think that they're going to be in really, really good shape going into next season. I do wonder why they gave the the Murray deal out this summer. That's the part I don't really understand. Okay, I'll get to that in a second, but we've got breaking news here. Okay, it's not Kawhi related, so don't get too excited. <laughs> okay. The Memphis Grizzlies are trading Kyle Korver and Javon Carter to the Phoenix Suns for DeAnthony Melton, Josh Jackson, a second round pick, and another a conditional second round pick according to Woj. So the Josh Jackson era in Phoenix is over. We got that incredible email from Marcos running down how little they've gotten from all of their uh, lottery picks. Go ahead and add Josh Jackson right to that list. Um, yes. Is Jay- the Josh Jackson era got incredibly bleak, incredibly fast. <laughs> there were some red flags. Uh, or I believe we termed them like orange flags because they weren't quite red on the way into the draft. But boy, oh boy, every character concern proved uh, proved relevant once he got to the NBA. Yeah, the Lennon era is over <laughs> down in Phoenix. Uh, <laughs> but is James Jones, famous NBA shooter, going to construct his roster with only shooting specialists? Like, is that what he did in the draft with his first round pick? And that's what he's doing, grabbing Kyle Korver? Like, is he going to be out there just accumulating like the Troy Danieluses of the world to build a dream roster in his own image? Is that what is that what's about to happen? I don't know. You know, they have taken some heat for the Rubio deal. So clearly Rubio oh, cuts right. against that theory. That's right. I like the Rubio deal as, as somebody who can come in and maybe raise the floor by three to five wins and keep the Suns a little bit respectable. I think his skills pair well with Booker. And granted, they had to pay the same tax that the Kings did with a lot of their deals, but like, that's worth it to me. And given given where the Suns have been over the last five years, wandering through the wilderness, like, just go get a veteran who actually knows what the hell he's doing. So unfortunately, Kyle Korver is getting bought out, according to Woj. I was going to say, which, that's 100% a buyout. <laughs> which scuttles my uh, plan. So they just handed James Jones with draft picks away. That is an embarrassing yep. move for Phoenix. I mean, we keep coming back to the same thing, but my goodness. Anyway, but getting back to the Ricky Rubio thing, there's this whole meme on Twitter about him like smiling or whatever. Unfortunately, I think that chapter is closed for him, and I think his next year of memes, it's going to be a lot of frowning, a lot of distant gazing, a lot of negative body language, which he just can't control because that's what it's going to be like down there in Phoenix uh, if they keep no, just look, losing man, pieces. look. You're not going to rain on my parade. I just offered the first Suns optimism we've had on this podcast for the last two and a half years. Just give us at least an hour of pretending this team is going to be half decent, okay? Rubio is going to be fine. It's like a a golden parachute for him in in Phoenix. It's going to be warm. He's going to be making a lot of money, and the Suns can maybe win 30 games next year. 
Did you miss the part where they just gave up two second round picks to trade Josh Jackson like 15 seconds ago? I mean, come on. This is not a parade. <laughs> this is the opposite of a parade. two seconds is fine. <laughs> I also like Javon Carter going back to the draft the last year. So I'm, I'm cool with it. Oh. Get, getting okay. It's an addition by subtraction, uh, an addition by subtraction situation with uh, Josh Jackson going out the door. But we've been saying that about every single trade they've made for the last five years. And somehow it never actually winds up being addition. It just winds up being subtraction. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to get okay. to get back to Jamal Murray from like five minutes ago, um, yep. they did not do this a year early, okay? It's like standard practice now if you have a core guy who's going to be entering restricted free agency that you try to take care of him before he enters that quote-unquote contract year. So you get rid of the uh, distractions, you just lock him in, you make him comfortable, and you keep your chemistry going the right direction. That's pretty standard practice for guys who are – basically viewed as like must keep um, players, you know, from their franchises, especially a small market franchise like Denver. Now, if you want to argue that they should have at least negotiated throughout this summer and come to terms Mm -hmm. on a deal in September before camp, where maybe they could save a little bit of money, uh, I would have been in favor of that. But it's not like they did this a year early. I think that's just out of step with sort of how NBA business gets done. The arguments for taking care of Jamal Murray, he has star potential. He fits really well with Jokic. Uh, you could argue that he makes Jokic's life better. Jokic certainly makes his life better. And when you're looking at the young point guards in the Western Conference, I think he's right there with any of them in terms of who's going to be part of that next generation. He proved that he was a gamer during the postseason. Uh, I thought he played really well uh, you know, throughout the playoffs. And he's yep. still really young, and he does the most important thing, which is you know shoot the ball and, and shoot the ball off the dribble. And he's about all of the right things. No character concerns, no other distractions or whatever else. So I can see why Denver was motivated and even highly motivated to take care of this thing early. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that there's been a knock on Tim Connolly that like he can get a little bit generous, right? It's like whatever you deserve, maybe he adds that 15% tip on top, right? Uh, yeah. And I think maybe that's uh, – if you're going to nitpick this one, I don't think you nitpick the timing so much as like the decision not to maybe negotiate a little bit tougher. Yeah, I agree with that. Mainly because I think that they are pot committed to the Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic partnership at this point, because the alternatives for them would be to flip Murray and try to get back a comparable star. And I just don't think that they can do that. And I understand why given those parameters, just max him out and make sure that he is happy the part that I worry about would probably be the rest of the roster, but like as far as uh, where they are right now, the the offseason has been about as good as you could hope for for them. Like they they paid Paul Millsap, they didn't cheap out there. Just picking up the team option rather than working out, you know, like a three or a four year deal where you start to get into like Al Horford territory with the the Sixers, where it's like you already know those last two are going to be pretty rough. I think that's a, yeah. a big win for them. Yeah, I agree. And um, Murray, I'm still not 100% sold on. I did talk to him before game one of the NBA Finals. He was in Toronto for that game. And uh, we actually, we talked about how much he loves Denver and how much he has enjoyed sort of like taking that Canadian underdog story and making it like a small market Denver underdog story. Yeah, did you apologize um, to him for everything you said about him during the playoffs? I did not. I did not. And I, my concerns are still there. But again, from a process standpoint on the Nuggets side, it's like, look, you're going to live and die with however far 
Jokic and Murray can take you. So just bet on those guys and and see where it leads. Right, um, and especially if you're coming off that Moutier era and like you have a position exactly. battle between Moutier and Murray, and Murray takes you to within one game. Uh, of the Western Conference Finals at age 21, yeah, you're going to back up the Brinks truck. Like, that's a natural exactly. human reaction. Maybe they just need a little more self-control. I think that's what I'm arguing for here. Like, you know, maybe you could save $10 million or, or $15 million if you just, you know, have a real conversation rather than just handing out a blank check. All right, so moving on to another rookie extension. Adrian Wojnarowski tweeted uh, yesterday that Philadelphia has offered a five-year, $168 million max deal to Ben Simmons, and the Sixers and agent Rich Paul are expected to work through details toward an eventual agreement, league sources tell ESPN. What do you think of that deal? I think it's sort of the same conversation insofar as, look, you just got to pay Ben Simmons, but the stakes are pretty high given how expensive the rest of the roster is in Philadelphia and given how limited they are in areas where Ben Simmons is like extremely, extremely limited. So I want to ask you first, before we get into the future stuff, did the last 72 hours provide confirmation for the idea that there was no way Philly could move forward with both Jimmy and Simmons? Because that was my initial reaction to the Jimmy trade is like, it's going to be one or the other. They have to pick and choose here. There's no way to do it. Do you, mm-hmm. do you think that what we saw in terms of Jimmy finding his own uh, situation, uh, reportedly turning down a pretty big offer from Philadelphia, and Philadelphia deciding, you know what, we're not going to you know drag our feet here, we're making Ben Simmons the guy, um, is you know was that accurate? You know, did they reach kind of yes. a loggerhead? Yes, I think that's probably an accurate way to explain what happened. Okay, I'm more, still not sure. More important question though, and that's what I was going to ask you: Did they make the right call? Yes, I think they absolutely made the right call because, again, it goes back to the Nuggets conversation. It's like, look, you're pot committed with Ben Simmons because you're not going to be able to look at— I mean, you could, and actually there are a lot of people in Philadelphia who probably would have been into the idea of just handing Butler five years for 190 and saying, we're going to move on from Simmons and try to flip him for— role players who can help a Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid core. That would have been insane, but uh, they could have done it. But Uh, I would have thought about that. I mean, that's pretty interesting. Really? Well, I I think if they had not gotten Josh Richardson back in that sign-and-trade, I was really impressed by that move. I also liked the Horford move just from a strategic standpoint of like weakening Boston in matchups with uh, Milwaukee. But if they hadn't gotten Richardson back and they had lost Butler for nothing – the idea of going forward with that big of a hole on the wing and Simmons and just hoping that he was going to be able to figure it out would have scared me. And I would have thought pretty seriously about seeing if I could trade him for, uh, you know, some depth to replenish from the previous trades. But to me, the Josh Richardson thing kind of tipped the scale in, in favor of Simmons because Richardson's on yeah. a great deal for multiple years going forward. I think he gives you like 70% of Jimmy at basically 30% of the cost. And uh, to me, Simmons whether or not he's the guy who actually takes Philadelphia over the top, he's always going to be a positive asset. Like even when he's on that, that's my the big thing. number, yeah. right? You can still trade well, him two years from now. And hence my disbelief a second ago when you're like, I, I thought you were arguing that maybe they would have been better off paying Jimmy Butler that massive deal. And I, I mean, there are again, definitely people in Philadelphia who think that's true, but I just wonder where Jimmy Butler will be. 
on the back end of that contract. And I think that Ben Simmons is a great insurance policy for like 10 years of Sixers teams. And they could also turn around, if it doesn't work, they could turn around and move him in year two or three of this extension. And he would have a ton of value around the league. And they'll be able to retool and do some creative things with whatever their nucleus is in the early part of the next decade if that's the direction things go. So, like, right, well, I understand paying him. Yeah, for but, sure. The alternate scenario, though, would it be like, okay, you've got Embiid, you bring back Jimmy, you don't bring back Tobias, you still make the Horford move, and then you get whatever you can get for trading Simmons. That's mm-hmm. pretty delicious if you're trying to make a 2020 title contender. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I'm not as sold on what Jimmy would have been able to do in Philadelphia well, over the next few years. But if but. if Simmons isn't there, you're going to get the best from Jimmy, right? And then you're going to you're going to still have a really nice defensive-minded team, Horford and Embiid in the middle still. Uh I don't know. Yeah, but the issue is like Jimmy Butler in Philadelphia and maybe you're saying that this is mostly because of Simmons's presence in there, but like it, throughout the regular season, his game was pretty muted. And he basically played well for half the Raptors series. And then everybody was like, oh, well, you got to max him and bring him back. And I like, I like what they did much better than, than that plan. So um, well, the tricky part is all- we don't know what you could get for Simmons. I bet you could get a lot for Simmons, but I think that they took a safer and more fan friendly approach by sticking with the guy that they drafted, you know, during those process years, by sticking with yeah. one of the most entertaining young uh, combos in Simmons and Embiid and just praying that this guy figures out how to shoot. And, you know, I, unfortunately, as a guy who really liked him, uh, coming into the NBA, his lack of progress on that front has been completely inexplicable. And, uh, now he's going to have his next big contract in the bank early. And what's his motivation to take that next step? I think that's, that's my open question with him. Okay. So let's get back. Let's get down to brass tacks here. Do you think Simmons will be on the Sixers in three years? Um, I do because I, there's the the possibility of an Embiid injury, right? And so, like, if mm-hmm. the worst case scenario happens and they have to start, you know, breaking this thing down, uh, you know, after a couple of years of trying to make title runs, Horford's old, so they you know have to trade him just to get him off the books. Embiid, you know, winds up who knows where his career is going to be health wise three years from now. Simmons to me is the most uh, he's the safest asset that they have on the entire roster. Yeah, and that's about where I come down. Again, it goes back to that insurance policy. It's like no matter what, he will give them a high floor during the regular season, and he will um, be uh, presumably healthy for the next 10 years and is going to be like an all-star level guy. So that's valuable, whereas Embiid has a higher ceiling but is more of a wild card. Um, Additional Sixers question, is this team going to have a point guard by the time we make it to October? Because Simmons, I would like the Simmons deal so much more if he were willing to play that kind of Draymond hybridish role. But to this point, he insists on playing point guard, which is a problem for me. Um, I think uh, Josh Richardson is going to have to do a lot of the ball handling in some of those high leverage situations when we get to the playoffs, um, which again is kind of like a strike against Simmons. But moreover, I think like the, the front office's failure to address the point guard situation over the last couple of years is kind of unbelievable to me. Like I joked on Twitter that this dates back to the end of the Hinky era 
which is true though. Like they just have not had a credible point guard in Philadelphia for a long time, unless you count TJ McConnell, who just signed with the Indiana Pacers this afternoon. So what do you think they do there and how serious a problem do you think it is? Well, your favorite point guard, Kyrie Irving, ran the eighth best offense last season and your least favorite point guard, Ben Simmons, ran the seventh best offense in the NBA last season. So I don't think it's a catastrophic problem. I think it comes out more in the postseason. I think that the fewer shooters that you have around Simmons, the bigger of a problem that it is. I think we've been over kind of time and time again, the idea that this roster isn't really constructed to maximize uh, his talents. I would be more worried about defending the point guard position if I was them than I would be about Simmons' ability to run the offense. Um, I think Horford's playmaking will help them. I think they're going to be so good on defense that the offensive questions are not going to, to really matter until okay. like the Eastern Conference Finals. That's about where I came down on Sunday night at the end of our free agency pod, where it's like, you know what? This team is going to have a really high baseline on defense, and they'll figure it out on offense. My only, it's more about like how the hell has this team just never addressed the point guard situation over the last couple of years? And again, that does matter in the playoffs. Um, no, I, but, I mean, I see you pandering to Spike and Mike and your buddies. They lose TJ McConnell, and so it's like the end of an era. I get it. <laughs> I I have been accused of pandering to Spike and Mike. Let me tell you one thing, okay? Anytime I praise the Sixers, it is in spite of Spike and Mike. Okay? <laughs> Through gritted teeth. Not, <laughs> yes, I don't ever want to say anything positive about the goddamn 76ers. I'm excited to see what they turn into next year. I'm also excited that for some reason they are going to continue to pretend that Ben Simmons is a point guard. We'll see how it all shakes out, but elsewhere in the Eastern Conference, Ben, Matt says, the Bulls have fleeced the Wizards again by getting Sadoransky from them. How does Andrew feel about this trade? I didn't expect the Wizards to let him go, and it's started to feel a bit better now to be a Bulls fan. So first of all, what do you think about what the Bulls have done this summer? Have they did, really done anything? I mean, come on. Like They avoided big mistakes, so I think maybe their fan base is, uh, is happy I mean, Sadoransky uh-huh. is a guy that you've overrated because your team's been so bad that you know his his being halfway <laughs> decent looked amazing, sort of by comparison. He's fine, nothing yeah. special. Um, but what's the big think, what's the big mover shaker movie? To, like you're that excited about Thaddeus Young? I I think it speaks to my Sadoransky biases that I'm pretty high on this Bulls offseason because you're right. We shouldn't get too overjoyed with bringing Sadoransky in and slotting him in as a starting guard next to Zach Levine. But I'm there anyway. I can't help it. I really like what the Bulls have done. I'm excited to watch Kobe White. And I'm even counting the Otto Porter trade as part of this offseason. And I think that next year's Bulls are going to be a lot more competent and coherent than last year's Bulls were. Okay, so slow down. Um, I need you to explain the Sadoransky thing because we talked about Bulls needing a point guard, Bulls needing a point guard for at least a year. We talked. We mm-hmm. went through a lot of different scenarios. Darren Collison, Patrick Beverly, uh, Malcolm Brogdon. I mean, almost any free agent who was available, I think at some point we probably said, hey, the Bulls should give a look to him. Uh, they come out with... Sadoransky, and he's going to have to be their full-time point guard, right? At 27, um, you know, he's, he's never really been a full-time starter. How are you this excited about it? 
Well, he he makes a lot of winning plays and is kind of a low usage guy who I think pairs fairly well with Zach Levine. And um, they just have needed somebody who can hit shots, but also not kind of like dominate the ball too much. And you got to consider the alternatives that, that Chicago was looking at, like bringing back Chris Dunn and trying to start him for another year. Can you imagine how depressing that would have been? And similarly, like starting Cody, Kobe White and asking him to be the guy would have been a little bit much as well. And I think Sadoransky is kind of a nice placeholder who can work at either guard spot and is not going to demand a lot of touches, a lot of uh, attention on offense. And that's sort of what the Bulls need at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a fit, but I'm not sure he was the answer, right? And like, I, it feels like you're saying placeholder or stopgap, whatever you want to call it. Like, this was a glaring hole, arguably the biggest positional hole for any team in the entire league. Um, mm-hmm. And he feels like a third rate backup plan. You know what I mean? Well, so what else should they have done? Should they have traded for like Jeff Teague or something? Well, I, I mentioned uh, the Brogdon possibility. I think I would have preferred that if I was them. Uh, there, you know, there's mm. Beverly. I, I would have chased him for sure, and I'm sure they did. I mean, the price got pretty high on him, uh, but Sadoransky's not that good. I, I understand what you're saying. Like, he's better than he gets credit for. He's a nice little glue guy and everything else, but they need like a legit, experienced, full-time starting point guard if they're going to get anything out of their front court scoring talent. Those guys need to be set up. Their offense was dead last last year. And how high do you think that Sadoransky is going to lift them? That's my question. I am bullish on them. Pardon the pun. I don't give a shit what you say. Uh, you're you're asking fair questions, but I also think that like paying Malcolm Brogdon $22 million a year would not have been a better answer than paying Sadoransky 10 and seeing what you have with these young guys and kind of taking it slow over the next two years. I they, They're preserving a lot of flexibility for 2021 while also investing in the young guys and putting capable people around them, which I think is the smart play if you're the Bulls. And again, I really like Otto Porter and what's possible for him in Chicago over the next few seasons. So I, I think you're being a little hard on them given some of the alternatives they had this summer. Uh, all right, a fact check. They were actually 29th on offense last year, not dead last. <laughs> That's a Chris Dunn and Zach Levine problem, okay? I think if you're taking the ball out of Zach Levine's hands and putting it in Sadoransky's hands and letting him distribute, letting Levine play off ball, like I think that's a better idea. Oh, it is a better idea, but that's not saying anything. Like Again, we're comparing them. Like This is the worst team in the league. Like They were completely dysfunctional. Remember, they had a mutiny. I mean, we don't have to go back through all the boiling stuff that we were making fun of, but I mean, the Bulls' offense was unwatchable and they have a number of uh very you know entertaining individual pieces who just did not work at all together it was the a classic case where you could really jump up and, and improve if you have somebody who's capable of, of running the show full-time and i'd still like to see it from him i mean he's pretty old i don't think he has any more ceiling than he's already shown and he's never been asked to, to carry the kind of load that he will need to if they're going to get mm-hmm. out of the bottom 10 in offense you know what i mean okay well, I'm prepared to stand out for Sadoransky and Kobe White, and I'm going to ride this Bulls bandwagon all the way to 43 wins and 7th place whoa, next year. Whoa, whoa, Are you and serious? You can just sit on the sidelines. Are you serious? I, I am kind of serious, oh yeah. Oh, God. All right. Can we bet on – can I take the under? You're setting it up. 43? <laughs> 
Wait a second. All right. Well, 43 may be a little oh. bit high because 43 could be like fifth place in the East. I'm I'm picking the Bulls to finish seventh place in the East next year. I'll stand by that. All right. I'll have to look at the standings because the East, I mean, it's one of those things I try to avoid at all costs. You know, it's just bleak. <laughs> well, that's what I'm thinking is like, all right, so... Speaking of teams that did not address their point guard needs, I mean, what did the Magic really do this summer to make us believe in them? Well, running the Magic are going to be the better than the Bulls next year. Come on. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Like, keep in mind, Wendell Carter Jr. missed like the final 50 games of the season. Well, keep in mind, he, he just Marketing. had surgery on his core today. <laughs> okay. Well, is he going to be healthy by October? Well, they, they say, but I mean, uh, we're not. <laughs> are we counting on a big bounce back after two surgeries in twelve months? I mean, I love the guy, but that's a rough start to your career. I love this. You and I are both locked in on the Bulls. Clearly, oh, set um, the line. But uh, let's do it. Forty-three wins. Yes. <laughs> Wait, I'm not committing to 43 wins. I'm committing to seventh place, and I will make that bet, and we can figure out the terms at Summer League. I also recently bought my Fred Van Vliet uh, Windbreaker, which I will be de- debuting in Vegas. So wow. I look forward to that. I do look forward to that. Yeah, according to my calculations, uh, you know, I've run some numbers. It looks like seventh in the East is going to be about 31 wins. So would you take the over? <laughs> <laughs> I believe. I believe in Kobe and Sato, okay? And I believe in Otto. Uh, basically, all players I liked before they got to the Bulls, I'm sold on. The actual Bulls, the jury is still out, but um, I'm willing to take a leap of faith here because I believe in my former Wizards. And speaking of my current Wizards, I don't even really want to address it right now. Maybe we can talk about it on Friday night, but I will read out our current depth chart via Candice Buckner. Point guard, Isaiah Thomas, Ishmith, Justin Robinson. Shooting guard, Bradley Beal, Jordan McRae, Jamario Jones. Small forward, Jonathan Simmons, Troy Brown Jr., Rui Hachimura, Isaac Bonga. Power forward, Mo Wagner, Admiral Schofield. Center, Thomas Bryant, Jan Mahenmi, and Dwight Howard, who is still on the roster. That is the saddest team in the entire NBA. Beal's presence there makes it even more depressing, I think. I think that's ultimately the tiebreaker between the Wizards right now and like the Charlotte Hornets or the Suns or whoever you want to throw into the most depressing conversation. I just, I don't know how we got here. The last 12 months have been a disaster. They've, they literally gave away Otto Porter for nothing. And the next 12 months are going to be equally brutal I don't know what I did to deserve this, but here we are. Well, I can think of a few things. I'm going <laughs> to... That's a very fair point. I'm going to run back the 2009 Wizards roster on you, and I want you to stack it up side by side and tell me what is more depressing, okay? okay. You had Gilbert Arenas, but he only played two games because of injury. And- yep. Andre Blatch, uh, D. Brown, not the dunk con- uh, contest champion, Karan Butler, Javaris Crittenden, <laughs> Antonio Daniels, Juan Dixon, Brendan Haywood, Mike James, Anton Jameson, JaVale McGee, Dominic McGuire, Alexi, Alexi Petrov, Darius... Petrov! Who could forget the Petrov era? Absolutely. Darius Sangaila, Deshaun Stevenson, Etan Thomas, and Nick Young. That team, if I'm not mistaken, won 19 games. Was their roster more or less depressing than the 2019 Wizards? Oh, boy. I think that roster 
They I don't keep know. in mind they went one in ten in their first eleven games to get Coach Eddie Jordan fired. Um, and they finished with a, a strong 18 and 53 push, but narrowly missed Dude, out on the playoffs. You know, that has happened a couple times because they, they repeated that process with Flip Saunders like four years later, where they started the year like four and 18. Oh, yeah. And Flip Saunders came out and was like, don't think it can't get any worse because it can. Yeah. And then I think he was fired like three weeks ago. No, later. I'm looking at it right now. They were two and 15. They got Flip Saunders fired. I'm glad to read this roster again. This could just be a recurring bit where we just read Wizards rosters and, and hear your pain. Uh-huh. That's, that sounds like a good idea. And it's really hard to say which which roster is more depressing because Gilbert, there were a lot of hopes and dreams baked into Gilbert Arenas. I mean, I literally started caring about basketball more than ever before. Gilbert was kind of like my gateway to the basketball internet. He made the Wizards so much more fun than they ever were when Michael Jordan came to D.C. He made the Wizards matter for the first time in a long time. And then that ended in the most depressing way possible. So um, can I can so, I add one addition to the current Wizards roster though? And actually, I guess technically it's two additions because you also have to consider John Wall and John Wall's contract on this year's current Wizards uh, balance as well. So a lot of what you're saying about Gilbert, I feel like the seesaw it winds up being evened out once you throw into uh, you know account those two factors. Well, and yes, that's what I was going to say is the Gilbert thing just seemed like a disaster that we were never going to be able to explain. Whereas fast forward 10 years, it's almost like watching it all happen on repeat. And now it feels like more of an institutional issue than like some sort of cosmic uh, situation. And it kind of feels like this is just how things are always going to be. So uh, that's not great. I think that probably tips the scales in favor of the 2019 depression. And wow. I still can't believe that they drafted Rui Hachimura in the top 10 and they oh, okay. gave the... We need some added context. What? Is this the most depressed you've been entering into a season since you followed the Wizards? Um, no, I don't think so because I, me personally, I was probably more depressed like eight or nine years ago. Now I am almost entirely detached from the Wizards, so they can't really hurt me anymore. And, uh, I, I reserve the right to say some irresponsible shit about Isaiah Thomas by the time we make it to October. I'm, I'm excited to root for that guy. And, um, and Beal, the final months of Beal could be fun too. Now I'm just looking at the 2001 Wizards. They had Christian Leitner, Jawan Howard, Cherokee Parks. That was a more depressed. I personally <laughs> was most depressed during the Leitner MJ partnership era. Like that, that one or two years was just brutal for me because I liked all the young guys they traded away. I was a big Courtney Alexander believer way back then, way back when, oh, yeah. and um, and then just watching like Charles Oakley. Jerry Stackhouse, watching those guys drag themselves up and down the floor with MJ was pretty brutal. Well, I said on the last podcast that I was going to try to be nicer and listen more to your feelings and, and, and hear your pain on this wizard stuff. Have we done that? Like, are we good? Yes. Okay, thank God. We've done that. I also forgot that they had Brian Russell as their point guard. Like, the MJ teams were the worst. I'm glad. Uh, ultimately, talking through this has made me grateful 
that that era is over and we can survive the current era in DC. So um, th- this idea, though, that they can hardcore tank by assembling the worst roster roster imaginable while also keeping Bradley Beal is can that be spun as a win win? Because the best case scenario uh, is that you win the lottery next year, right? And then you also re-sign Bradley Beal uh, at some yep. point. Are those two and things then Wall's in play? coming back 100%. I'm going to be unbearable once Wall's coming back, once they have the number one pick in place, Beal's still here. Uh, no, honestly, if you want my serious, smart person answer, I don't understand why they're trying to balance those two objectives Threading that needle seems pretty far-fetched, but it does seem like that's the direction that they're going to go, so whatever. You're not even going to give yourself a second to talk yourself into Isaiah Thomas? Uh, No, like I said, by October, I'll be there with Isaiah, but um, right now, letting Sato go for nothing seems like... like, There's this idea that the Wizards are going to be the Brooklyn Nets. Sato is their best non-Beal asset and just giving him away to the Bulls for a 2020s second round pick, like that doesn't make much sense to me. But um, par for the course, actually, over the last 12 months. Now we have officially gotten too dark. So no, this is really fire. sad. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh, but uh, now I understand why you're so in on the Bulls because you, really yeah. you really love Sato and he was ripped out of your arms. He was solid and would and will help a winning team, and maybe it happens in Chicago. But rapid fire at the end here. Zachary says, I've never been a huge fan of Brogdon with images of, of him ignoring Giannis in transition or getting blocked at the rim by 30 Raptors players seared into my brain forever. But the fact is he was an important member of a 60-win championship-level team why are Bucks fans defending ownership obviously getting cheap and unwilling to pay the tax when the Bucks were a few Fred Van Vliet missed threes away from a finals berth? So, Ben, I include that for two reasons. One, I don't think we need to spend too much time on the Bucks fan side of this because I think, like, I have a few friends on the Bucks internet, and I think that they there are two categories of Bucks fans. There are some fans who are, like, super hardcore and like borderline the most radical NBA fans on the internet. And then there's this other group that like doesn't want to pay Chris Middleton, thinks Brogdon was overpaid and doesn't really understand basketball. So we don't need to necessarily like engage with that attitude too, too much. But what do you think about the Bucks letting Brogdon go? Because I think that is a valid concern. I'm glad you tried to steer me off the Bucks fans because I was gonna, Im- immediately my mind went back to hearing the Pfizer form crowd chant Bucks and four after game two of the Eastern Conference Finals. And it just got mm. really sad. I mean, really, really, really quickly. And it'd be a little too much after all your Wizards digressions. Um, <laughs> I think that all things considered, the Bucks are winners. They got the most important pieces back. Uh, they get Middleton back on the contract everybody knew he was going to get. They get Lopez back on a decent deal. Uh, they get George Hill back, uh, which I think winds up being somewhat of, of a save for Brogdon. To me, the whole summer was going to kind of boil down to were they going to find some magic way to keep Brogdon? And I think that some franchises, you know, like the Warriors of the world, uh, would have you know had some crazy sweetheart plan cooked up to like just keep him so they could run it all back and win the title. And I think, unfortunately, um, that wasn't in place. And for a guy getting his first big payday, he was a pretty obvious target to get poached. I thought that they were able to get back future draft assets as part of that sign and trade is actually really helpful. 
because there's going to come times here over the next year or two where as we get closer to Giannis's free agency, where they're going to need to make some all-in moves. And they burned a bunch of second-round picks to get Miritich. Um, so not losing Brogdon for nothing to me was a win. Uh, and being able to keep those other guys. Now, am I going to get too excited about Robin Lopez and Wesley Matthews for them? No, not really. Um, but I think that they were sort of in that prime position to have a whole bunch of their guys cherry-picked and then potentially facing like an identity crisis where like, oh my God, we lost all these guys. We can't keep Giannis happy. We're screwed. I think they avoided mm-hmm. that. If I were them, um, I probably would have just paid up to keep Brogdon, um, but I understand why they didn't. And I think it's a, a fairly good save from their standpoint. It's a decent save. Um, I'm a little bit frustrated given how bad Eric Bledsoe looked in the playoffs. That's the only reason I would be concerned. Brogdon is not as good a defender as common NBA fans think and he is not as good an offensive creator as I think a lot of people assume and he is pretty overpaid right now and the, there's a, there are injury risks as well but at the same time you look at what Giannis is going to be working with and it's like it's it's tough to watch Brogdon leave for nothing because off the dribble well, they got, they he got was one of the though. only guys I mean, who could score. It's not quite nothing, you know what I mean? Like if they had if they had not gotten anything back, I would have said it's a worse thing. I guess put it this way though: Would you rather have Bledsoe on his number from Milwaukee or Brogdon on his number? Maybe Brogdon on his number, just because at this point. All that matters is the conference finals and the NBA finals. If you're the Bucks, that's what you have to be thinking about is who is going to be most valuable in those big time situations. And um, Bledsoe just like kind of flunked that test this year. And hopefully he bounces back because it was hard to watch because he had such an awesome year. And he was even great during the Celtics series, like ruining Kyrie Irving's life. But um, it's it, that doesn't really matter because like the Bucks honestly should have won the NBA title this year. They should have beaten the Raptors and then should have beaten the shorthanded Warriors. And so, but the um, important thing is that Giannis know. is rested. You know, like because if they had tried to play him more than like thirty-four minutes, you know, who knows what would have happened. <laughs> yes, he got some good rest on the way into his campaign. His yeah, the new Greek Freaks. We should talk about the Greek Freak shoes on Friday. Um, but Ben, at this point, I think we've gone far enough for everybody. It's 4th of July. Everyone's probably checked out by this point in the podcast anyways. And, um, we're all just going to be waiting on Kawhi here. Who knows when he'll decide? Probably about 15 minutes after we finish recording this. I hear you, man. The end of this podcast was for the true diehards, the people who want to get to know you a little bit better to, you know, take even past that social media realm and really get into your heart of hearts and your soul. Um, hopefully people, you know, <laughs> they're not playing like the mood music uh, after the fact because uh, it did get a little dark there. Guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for our page. It's two words, open floor. Find it, scroll down. There's a section that says rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Uh, we're also on the world famous radio.com slash open floor. Check me out on Instagram at ben.goliver. We're still doing free agency analysis all week long, breaking down various teams, what they've done, who won, who lost, all that good stuff. Andrew, until later this week, live from Las Vegas Summer League, where Zion Williamson will take over the the world, the internet, and everywhere in between, I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy.